Hey, Susanna. Hey, Javit. How's it going? Very well. How are you? I am good. Thank you. It's been a very icy weekend. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Sending out a lot of uh, love and patience and back strength for all the shoveling that is happening in Vermont and upstate New York. Actually, I got to send hopefully some safety too. We had like pretty big power outages uh, right by our new office in Kingston. There was like multiple days, I think, that people lost power. There's like something like 13,000 people who are still without it. So obviously sending some electricity vibes their way. Hopefully that will come back on soon. And what's what's uh, what's going on in the world of climate news? Uh, New York Times had an interesting article this past week called Climate Change Enters the Therapy Room. The, uh, the subtitle here is psychologists propose that a wide range of people would suffer anxiety and grief over climate. Skepticism about that idea is gone. Okay. So basically people have been feeling a way about climate. Uh, and now you can't deny anymore that those are real feelings. Okay. Yeah. Apparently people are talking to their therapists about their, uh, their doom and dread over climate. What, I mean, I get it. I'm, right, I'm yeah. talking to my therapist about that too. I totally get it as well. It's like, it's almost like something that I don't know, you'd like start a podcast about so you can like talk to one of your best friends and kind of feels like this is a little bit of therapy for us <laughs> anyway. Actually, yeah. Now that we're talking about it, I feel like this is, it's almost like the antidote, right? It's like you talk to your therapist about climate doom and then you listen to the podcast and you're like, yes. oh, solutions. It's okay. Yes, absolutely. I think just being so centered on solutions has been like a nice kind of change of pace for me anyway, versus just chasing the news cycle. So kind of like Mr. Rogers said, we're looking to the helpers on this season. And actually on this episode, I'm, I'm particularly excited about this episode because it feels so grounded. <laughs> wow. That was, that, that was, was the dad joke. <laughs> that was the dad joke audience because this week we're talking about regenerative agriculture. Yep. Let's get right into it. Well, uh, that's great. Suzanne is laughing at me because I was just doing a dance that I always do while the intro music plays. Now y'all know that that's what's happening. We got to make that a TikTok trend. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we'll start a TikTok just so we can capture my intro music dances. This is great. And today's Solar Spill Solutions episode is going to be centered on regenerative agriculture. But I think before we can like give it its grade based on its impact timing costs and x factor Susanna could you could you tell me could you tell our dear listeners what the heck is regenerative agriculture Yes, absolutely. Let me fill you in on some deets. Um, And also just a side note, I find it very difficult to say regenerative agriculture. So I'm just going to call it RA for the rest of the podcast. I'm not, turns out I'm not a professional film and television actor and I have some diction issues apparently, but um, okay. So what is regenerative agriculture or RA as I would like to call it? Well, let's start with what it is not. So what is conventional agriculture and why do we want to move away from that? Um, conventional agriculture is in a word it's depleting. What we generally do is we try to grow a lot of just one thing in a space at a time. So it's just acres and acres of wheat or just acres and acres of soybeans. And the net effect of that is that we're pulling a lot of specific nutrients out of the soil because we're just growing one thing. That one thing needs 
specific building blocks. It's just pulling those out of the soil. It's depleting the soil of those things. So if we want to grow something again, after we've grown that one crop, we generally have to add things to the soil to put back enough of the things that that one thing took out. So those are generally chemical fertilizers. And in the most industrialized forms of agriculture, we're also using things like pesticides and herbicides to kill off the things that we don't want to harvest or to try to protect the harvest from bugs, things like that. That also equates to depleting the soil. So what we're left with here is a system where we're really destroying our soil, we're destroying uh, biodiversity, and we're destroying resilience. And that's just plant farming. Um, standard industrial or factory animal farming is even worse because that's also uh, a less efficient use of land. So we're using all the methods that I just described to grow plants like corn, like soybeans to feed the animals. And then we're also using a bunch of land to house and let the animals live um, on themselves. But we are doing it in such great concentrations that the land they live on is also pretty much dead. It's just dirt. It's not soil. Um, there's nothing beneath their hooves. It's just dirt. So it's kind of a, it's a double whammy. And that's just like brushing the surface of the problems with the factory animal farming. It's like, there's also all this concentrated animal waste that's in giant pools. There's also the whole sort of like humane treatment ethical aspect. Anyways, <clears throat> bottom line is it's kind of a double whammy on the land that we're depleting with the animals. So there's just a huge amount of concerns with it all the way around conventional farming. It's not great. I mean, the animals also produce emissions themselves, but that is not what we're talking about. That's conventional farming. Okay. So it sounds like we've got these interlocking systems of very, very bad. You've got sort of like mass factory farming, which beyond animal cruelty, beyond the ethics of it is generating a heck of a lot of waste. It's housing these animals. Uh, in really, you know, terrible conditions, but also like kind of containing their own filth. You're feeding them all of these like monocropped uh, foods and then the monocropping itself seems to be pulling essential nutrients out of the soil. And so we have to like amend or put stuff back into the soil to make it viable again. And usually that's chemical. Man, it just sounds terrible even on its own, but how does that sort of fit in with climate change and emissions? Because, you know, here when we talk about RA, regenerative agriculture, we're going to talk about its relationship to climate change. So how does how do these systems kind of exacerbate our problems with climate change? Yeah, that's a great question. We and our listeners know there's too much carbon in the atmosphere because we burn fossil fuels. Um, that's where most of our carbon emissions have come from, about two thirds. But even if we stop burning them entirely tomorrow, we would still have this huge excess of carbon in the atmosphere, which would continue to be a problem for a long time. So to get our atmosphere back down to the 350 parts per million of carbon, and we're at about 400 now, we're going to have to remove about a hundred gigatons of carbon from the atmosphere. Wow. Okay. Yes. So that's a big problem. <laughs> yes. Um, where do we put it? And I think, you know, probably on a future episode, we're going to talk about other um, ways of taking carbon out of the atmosphere, but it turns out we already have a solution that could be pretty effective. Um, over the last 12,000 years through agricultural practices, we've removed about 136 gigatons of carbon from our soils. So that's through farming, that's through deforestation, that's through tilling, the soil actually stores a ton of carbon and we have released a lot of it. So there's kind of a perfect solution here. We have a hundred gigatons we need to get rid of. We already know the soil has at least a capacity of 136 gigatons because that's what we took out of it. 
So how do we get the carbon back into the soil? That's where regenerative agriculture comes in. Okay, so if the conventional agriculture is monocropping, is factory farming, is chemical uh, amendments to soil, then what is regenerative agriculture as a contrast? Well, it's kind of ironic to think about, you know, Mother Nature sustains animals and she grows lots of plants. So why is it that when we do it, we kind of break this perfect system and cycle where things support each other and fertilize each other and make each other grow. When we do it, it's depleting. Well, it doesn't have to be that way, right? Mother nature is a perfect example of creating systems to grow plants and animals that support one another and make each other healthier. So regenerative agriculture is a set of practices that seeks to regenerate soil, to create biodiversity, to create these healthy systems the way that mother nature does instead of deplete it. And I also want to just like take a little pause here because it's also sort of the white status quo culture name for these practices that have been around in indigenous communities forever. So I want to acknowledge that here that it's becoming popular now in climate circles and there's, you know, sort of lots of status quo kind of systemic markers being created around it, like whole education programs coming around it, but um, it's been around for a long time under another name. This is not new stuff. This is not, not stuff we're discovering. This is really indigenous practice and culture that uh, we're adopting because it's a better way. Nice. Thank you so much for that context too. Cause yeah, I remember even last year when uh, some comment through the climate action film festival, you led a conversation with a couple of filmmakers who were talking about regenerative agriculture uh, and had captured subjects who were actual regenerative ag farmers. Um, and yeah, there was such a, an incredible connection to essentially indigenous wisdom and practice um, that we, this like white, hopefully moving past, you know, the patriarchy and the patriarchal systems of like mass farming and factory farming, like, we can kind of get back in touch with this wisdom that has met, you know, it's just been like undervalued, underappreciated and underused by our dominant, like, you know, white cultures. So thanks so much for kind of contextualizing that and bringing, bringing it essentially back in and giving credit, credit is due. Yeah, absolutely. It's important we name that. So let's concretely talk a little bit more about exactly what the practices are, which is, and these are just a few, you know, it, sure. it covers a lot more things, but okay. just so you know, kind of know what we're talking about. Um, it's keeping soil planted. So that's using cover crops, never having bare soil. Bare soil allows the carbon that's in the soil to just leak out of it. Um, minimizing tillage. So tilling is when you're kind of digging up the land. That's generally a way that farmers and many organic farmers actually get rid of plants they don't want. Um, because you, that's a great way to get rid of plants without using a chemical herbicide. But when you till that also releases a ton of carbon. So RA says minimize as much tillage as possible. You have to build organic matter with cover crops, uh, and you definitely can use amendments and fertilizers, but you tend to go the more natural route, like cow manure, as opposed to chemical fertilizers. So chemicals are really discouraged. They generally deplete carbon by killing soil organisms that store carbon. So we try not to use chemicals. We try to use a lot of plant diversity. Diversity builds really strong ecosystems. It's great for the organisms that are actually doing the work to store the carbon. So diversity is a plus. So no monocropping, no monocultures. And this is one that surprises a lot of environmentalists because we've been told for a long time that eating meat is a part of the problem and we should not eat meat, right, but right, yeah. regenerative agriculture can actually include animal agriculture. But the thing is that when we approach it, 
we're not going to approach it in the factory farming monoculture sense of animal agriculture. We're going to do it as part of a system. And when you incorporate animals as part of a system, doing what they should be doing in mother nature, right? Which is maintaining pastures and helping fertilize and not overcrowding animals, they can actually be a huge part of making this system work. Okay. So we've got keeping plants in the ground, keep your soil planted. You've got minimal tillage. You've got avoid chemicals wherever possible in the sort of amending of the soil. Uh, plant diversity, which honestly, it feels such like such common sense. It's almost like you're... Um, your, like to make the macro micro, like it even sounds like your own gut health. Like you want to have a diverse diet and, you know, whenever you are really sick or taking medications that like deplete your natural, like gut biome, you want to like take probiotics and put that stuff back in. Like it just makes a lot of sense there. And then also, I think this is a huge plus because it kind of pushes back against that like red blue party line. That seems to like one of the arguments against, you know, all these mitigation measures for climate change is like, kind of like the red states being like, they're going to take our beef. It's like, no, we just need to make sure that it's more like balanced, that it's a part of a whole system. That makes a lot of sense. What I love about this is that it's just like, it seems so commonsensical, but yeah, it also, I just, I think it might be a nice bridge to just go right into talking about the impact. Cause I think you already started to tease out uh, the most glaring, what was it like a a gigaton of carbon, but why don't you lay out what the impacts of RA, regenerative agriculture, could be? Well, it could be huge because it has the ability to not only sequester carbon, which is the problem to the tune of 100 gigatons, but also to reduce emissions and the damage that's caused by conventional farming practices. So if all the farmland in the world committed to these practices, some sources say that we could store that hundred gigatons of carbon that we need to get rid of in five years. Like that's massive. That is so huge. I mean, to me, that's like a plus, 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 plus on the impact. Definitely. Definitely. I was also just based on the research that you put together. I started to look at some of the hardware that's used on these farms, like for tilling, for example, and these massive attachments, they have like deep tilling uh, devices that attach to like your John Deere or whatever maker model of your tractor. And then they have stuff that is specifically more designed towards that, like less invasive tilling. And of course, it's dragging less weight, it's using less fuel. And we know that those gas guzzling farm equipment that they're that are using often are not put to the same emission standards than your standard vehicles that are like on the roads and highways. So if you think about the compound effect of not just sequestering the carbon in the soil that's already being generated through the process of planting, we're also reducing emissions by thinking about the aggregate effect that this might have if we implement this on a systemic level. Less fuel consumed, less tilling. You know, if there's always plants up, it kind of can remove one of the large extraction processes of the farming cycle, which is really cool. So I, I, I definitely so far put this in like a plus 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 i mean plus we're also still growing food right like it's still like meeting a basic need of society right absolutely until we got the conversion what is it called when we mesh with machines it's called the kurzweil kurzweil wrote about it yes um, the singularity the singularity that's it the coming technological until we <laughs> that's a different that we're gonna like have an off that's a different podcast, podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's a different podcast. yeah until the singularity 
that's our other podcast where we talk about dystopian technology issues. Weirdly, um, they're also called the solar spill. I don't know why. <laughs> Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Fun fact, the diesel engine was initially developed for farmers to run on oil, on vegetable oil. That's the way it was designed. It was not designed to run on diesel fuel. It was designed to run on vegetable oil so that farmers could grow their own fuel for their tractors, which is pretty badass. And then the so fossil fun. fuel industry just co-opted the engine and was like, oh, we can make a better fuel out of fossil fuels. Thanks a lot. Anyway, so yeah, I think the impact could be super mega. I think the X factor we need to keep in mind here is kind of like with all of these solutions, that the fewer people who adopt the solution, the smaller impact it has. And how on earth do we get everyone growing food commercially all over the world to adopt these practices? That's it's a huge, that's a sea change in terms of you know social change and expectation, also business practice change. Uh, it does sound like that, that would be a pretty big barrier of entry, just the conversion cost, shall we say. Interestingly enough, a lot of factory farming and agriculture is kind of owned and you know propagated by a company called Monsanto. Potentially, if there would be a way to incentivize them to whole cloth change the whole system of agriculture that they were supporting, I mean, that potentially could be a massive linchpin on the impact because they control an enormous amount of the resources and tools and sort of best practice advice, honestly, that farmers follow and use in conventional farming practices. But are there any other factors for impact? Because I think like the food itself, like I was saying, it doesn't just grow food. There must be, it must be to some capacity that RA produces a better quality of food. Like you were mentioning that more nutrients are kind of in the soil based on regenerative agriculture, that's got to play out on the other end, having a good impact on the actual foods we're eating. Is that, is that a safe assumption? Yeah, it definitely creates more nutritious food for sure. And yeah, there's many other positive impacts that are even beyond farming, you know, because when you have biodiverse soil, Mm -hmm. you're impacting and improving all of the wildlife that's interacting with that system, right? It's not, it's not as if you grow a hundred acres of food and birds don't go there. Do you know (laughs) what I mean? Well said. Yeah. So, okay. So even beyond carbon sequestration of keeping carbon in the soil, we're talking about pretty seismic impacts into the sort of quality of food and the biomes that we are supporting for all the animals and creatures that might interact with it. That's cool. So impact seems like a really, really strong A. Let's move on to sort of time. How does this sort of solution of RA, how long would we need to kind of make this change? And of course, like you're saying, like, Let's talk about this in terms of like a systems level change, right? Yeah, I think that the timing also gets an A++ because this is a solution that really doesn't need a lot of time. There are massive and immediate gains to be had within five years. And it's, again, it's immediate. So every acre of farmland that transfers to the system immediately sees really sizable and impactful improvements in the amount of carbon they can store in the soil. Again, if everybody did it, the problem would go away in five years. Like that's unbelievably massive in terms of impact. Yeah, I I can't really argue with that. The fact that it's something that it's a technology that's older than contemporary factory farming, right? The tools of knowledge exist and the tools, the actual machined tools to pull this off are redundancies. They already exist. And so in that way, I feel like it's really implementable. The fact that 
if we reach that systems level change, the problem would be solved in five years, does really jive well with the eight year horizon that we're talking about. So even if we were slow to start, even if there's like a three to four year conversion time, getting a, a glut of farms to move over into this type of organization makes a lot of sense. I would give you know regenerative agriculture a really solid grade on timing for sure. How about cost? It's got to be expensive. And I also want to consider social costs, but let's start with cost costs. Like how could we even begin to calculate this? Yeah. I mean, this is the stumbling point of my research. I'm not really sure how to calculate this. If all farming transitioned over to regenerative agriculture, it would be a massive, massive, massive change for our food system. And it would require, you know, those, those big players that are currently supporting those status quo factory farming practices like Monsanto, it would require them to either collapse or completely change. And that seems like a pretty massive cost. I mean, we have not seen very many big corporations who have any level of responsibility for the problem saying, yeah, see change, 100%, whole cloth, ready to do it. So doesn't doesn't feel like that's going to be an easy cost to pay. Drawdown also has this as one of their top solutions, and they did put some some numbers to the problem. Oh, um, Susanna, just for the sake of the listener, in case they don't know, could you explain what Drawdown is? Yes, thank you. So Drawdown is a book, and now I guess sort of a movement as well, an organization and a movement to to capture to quantify the most impactful solutions to combat climate change if you're not familiar go check it out drawdown.org but one of the things that they have tried to do is put some numbers to the cost of some of these solutions um, to the savings and also to the profits and um, they had slightly different numbers in terms of the impact and the cost than what I saw in some other sources but they're showing that it's a net profit. So it, it will take billions of dollars to implement, but the lifetime net profit is hundreds of billions of dollars. So um, they are proposing, yes, it will cost and it will make us a ton of uh, financial profit as well. It's not just environmental impact. It's really good to know. And I, I love that book. I think when I was first starting at Some Common, we were engaging with it as a brand. And so I, you know, I finally got around to reading it in chunks. It's actually just a really eminently readable book. It's really, really wonderful. Definitely recommend it for any listeners to the podcast. And as well, when you were mentioning how it's like kind of hard to calculate this, because I think it defies our capitalist imagination that a company would ever willingly like, you know, transition through a painful nonprofit scenario towards a better way for the sake of doing it. But the examples do exist. And I'm not like saying that it, what I'm about to say does not, you know, absolve this company that I'm going to mention of any wrongdoing on a larger scale, but like SC Johnson, for example, at a certain point, we're doing their own focused climate research and they realized that certain chemical additives they're putting into their products and into their plastics process were obviously creating an outsized impact on uh, PFCs and like the release of really terrible uh, byproducts of this process. And without a press release, without um, any sort of like fanfare or like what we would call sort of corporate greenwashing of the message, they simply removed those processes and those plastics from their process and from their products without telling anybody, telling anybody, and actually significantly 
impacting negatively the quality of some of their products, like their um, plastic wrap, their like saran wrap. It's like less sticky than it was in the 80s and early 90s, less effective. But they're like, yeah, you know, honestly, in the end, there isn't a planet to sell these products to. What's the point of making them? They did this with their packaging. There's like examples of companies doing good and potentially a larger theory that we might want to explore in a future solutions uh, season episode, which is this idea, this concept of degrowth, right? Degrowth, it's, there's some traction for it. It sounds incredibly intense, but it is a structured, you know, movement away from the idea of constant expansion, constant profit and growth. So degrowth might be an interesting thing for us to explore because it could give us some vocabulary for how to even imagine what these transitions would look like. Can that please be the next season? I'm actually reading the degrowth book right now. We should just do like a degrowth book club for the next sure. season. That'd yeah, yeah, so we fun. could do we could do like a mini season just on degrowth. It's a, it's a huge concept. And I think uh, like the imagination is a really important partner in solutioning, right? Like we have to be able to imagine the solution. We have to be able to see, and you, you've said this on a number of different uh, podcast episodes where it's like, they don't want us to be able to imagine a solution framework, they being the system as it stands now. So yeah, I think that could be really cool. We should return to that. So, okay. It is hard to think about, but essentially the cost on one end is companies taking a hit to their profits to transition the system. I think also there kind of likely might be a social cost. When I thought about this, I thought about like, you know, as horrible as factory farming is and as monocropping is, it produces a glut of goods that are then frozen and shipped around the world. So I can have my like raspberries year round. I can have my ridiculous fields of corn all the time because I am an American and I am made of corn. But like those standards would shift, right? I as a consumer would have to enter a different relationship with food, one that's more local, one that's more seasonal. And that to me feels like a social cost. Are there any other sort of like social costs we might have to consider? Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think people would probably argue that any solution to climate change is going to change our relationship to food. Like if we do nothing, our relationship to food is definitely going to change because it's going to get a lot harder to farm. I think the weather, like the actual climate part of this is a really interesting X factor because, you know, these days we are seeing the climate change and we are seeing it have impacts on farming. Like this past summer, several of my farmer friends just in the Hudson Valley had entire fields go bad because they were literally under six inches of water because we just had these huge deluges. And we know more of that is coming, right? Intense periods of rain and intense periods of drought. Like those intense periods are going to be more common as opposed to the more even weather that we've been used to. So um, as climate change progresses, the climate actually is going to kind of conspire against us in a way to this being a solution because farming is just going to be that much harder. I would anticipate that the, you know, the Monsantos and the conventional farming practice leaders of the world are going to say, well, now you need us even more, you know, oh, your your fields might flood or they might you know, be droughtful here is a a system that we've created in the conventional farming method, which will help you with that. So, um, it's, yeah, it's kind of ironic how the climate is a really key partner to the solution. And the more it degrades, um, I'm worried the less impactful the solution will be. It's kind of like do it now or do it never. Right. So there's a cost to waiting, 
it puts a little bit more onus on timing. And just to make that 100% clear, you're saying the longer that we factory farm, the longer that we monocrop, the more we're exacerbating the problems in the soil, and it will make it harder for farms to convert over into the system. So that, yeah, that definitely feels like the cost, an additional cost of waiting, essentially. But, you know, hey, if you want to get around all these sort of social costs of like not being able to eat raspberries, you know, in the dead of winter, wherever the hell you are in the world, think about the alternative, right? Like you were saying, like if we exacerbate farm systems or if we exacerbate climate change even more, it will have an impact on food systems, like guaranteed. It's give up your raspberries or start learning how to eat crickets and enjoying them, right? Because we know that like bugs, grubs, and other algae would be an alternative food source based on certain research that could actually keep up with feeding the human population. So it's like we can use we can use a little bit of fear mongering about eating bugs to facilitate this 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 transition. So that feels like cost is like a big one. Cost doesn't get an A. It's going to be expensive. It's going to require a lot of conversion and maybe even some conversion type, you know, change behavior uh, in, in our population. So that's, that's, that's like a middling grade, right? So that's a hit. Any X factors that we can think of that we haven't covered yet? We've been talking about this as solely an agricultural land solution, but, you know, a lot of us have land, whether it's a quarter acre yard or multiple acre parcel that your house sits on. A lot of us do have land that we steward that we could be doing this with too. You know, a lot of us have lawns that we mow that we could be planting with perennials to take more carbon out of the soils. And um, a lot of us put chemicals on that land that we steward that we don't have to, you know? So I think there is sort of an interesting X factor here that we could extend this beyond agricultural land, if we could really make, you know, just sort of a cultural impact on the way that we steward our land to be more about these practices, the impact I think could actually even be more far reaching. I love that. And I think to me, I needed to hear that. Cause like, I, I do think that there's something when I zoom out, when I think about impact, timing, cost, and X factors altogether, I think I'm looking at probably my most stable, highest graded solution that we've talked about so far on this season. Regenerative ag, despite the costs and despite having a hard time wrapping our imaginations around the transitional period, it can start right away. And it can start on farms, like you're saying, as small as your home hobby farm, as small as your backyard. But then those changes, actually, the impact scales up and up and up as it's implemented. So to me, the ramp of its potential impact matches, if not exponentially outpaces the cost as we go along. It gets easier as we engage with it, especially as you mentioned, there is a cost to waiting. To me, this solution as a whole, the fact that it relies upon redundant knowledge, redundant tools, that it can be done, that it can lead to a better quality of nutritious food, better you know, better environments for our uh, secondary sort of plants and animals around these spaces. To me, this is like a no brainer, definitely in the A range. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's super impactful. It can be super quick in that impact. There's lots of benefits beyond just the emissions and sort of carbon impact we're talking about. I think, you know, what's the really stopping point is that it's a knowledge gap 
it's a cultural gap for, for farmers who are used to doing things in a very specific way and have all those systems set up. And it's a systems gap, right? So I, th- I think we can work with those things. I, you know, it's just a matter of how we encourage those changes to happen. But yeah, I agree. I think it's a super, super impactful and super timely solution. Awesome. So I'm I'm comfortable giving it an, at least an A minus. Should we push it up to an A? What are you feeling? Yeah, I think A minus because there, you know, like some of the other solutions we've talked about, there isn't one regulatory body all over the world that could implement a change like this. And right. there are some like pretty big corporate actors standing in the systemic change way. Yes. So I think it is more of an A minus just because of the hurdles to implementation. But as a solution, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah, fair, totally fair game. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for taking us on this kind of tour of regenerative agriculture through the lens of it, its relationship with climate change. I really, really appreciate it. And coming up next week on next episode of the Solar Spill Solution Season, we're going to take a look at the same process of capturing and sequestering carbon, but we're going to do it from the exact opposite perspective. If regenerative agriculture captures carbon using ancient wisdom, you know, and redundant tools, We're going to take a look next week at actual carbon capture technologies, i.e. big technologically advanced machines that purport to pull carbon out of the air. So I'll be doing the Mm. research on that one. And it's going to be an interesting episode, y'all. So Mm. the sort of contemporary technology take on capturing carbon. But for now, if you are in New York's Hudson Valley, Capital Region, or Vermont, and you're thinking about going solar, please give us a shout. We're at suncommon.com. And if you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, or ideas for the solar spill, you can email us directly at solarspill at suncommon.com. So for the solar spill solution season, I'm Tavi. I'm Susanna. Thank you so much for listening.